chapter. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring sh shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And, the, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. too much to try to say today um, and to spare you all I was thinking this morning I was like I'd have some sort of like intro or some way to like make it a little smoother I'm like if I do that I'm just gonna take way too long um, 
But we've been talking the last couple of weeks a lot about this. It's kind of we've been transitioning through through Abraham and then and then to Isaac and now to Jacob. And we've talked a lot about just the, the brokenness of that family. And I'm not going to rehash everything, but we've seen clearly that this is a family that has a lot of issues going on. There's been a lot of giving away wives and lying about them being their sister, and there's been um, all sorts of, of issues, and people, and we see Abraham, we see this in Abraham's life, we see it in Isaac's life, and we saw this the last two weeks, we've seen now in Jacob, there's this dishonesty, how you see, first he, he cons his brother out of the birthright, and then he lies to his father to, to now get this blessing. And, and as we've been talking about this, it is my hope that, that we can find a level of hope in this for us to know that that this family that God is working through is broken, they are messed up, and yet God is still working through them in a mighty way. And hopefully that we can hear hope in that as, as broken people, as people needing a lot of help and just the sin in our own lives, that um, God still works through broken people. And as we went through this experience with Jacob last week, as he went and lied to his father, as he, as he stole this blessing from Esau, one thing that I kind of left off with, one of the big points we were talking about, was that God was not finished with Jacob. That God was still at work in his life. That it wasn't this, this snapshot that we saw, this, this very apparent sin, this, this wickedness in him, was not, he was not a finished product, but God was still working. And we're going to see that process really start today. And what I hope to show you is that, is what God does in that process. That that though we've seen this in the life of Jacob, we've seen his sin, what changes is God coming to Jacob. And then at the same time, we see that God still works that way. God still comes to us. But to really set the stage for really this text this morning, I, I want to spend a couple minutes, probably five or ten minutes, really kind of setting up the text today, because I think it's really important to understand the background of Jacob, to, to understand, as God reveals himself to Jacob, as, as he responds in a certain way, there, there's a background here. We don't, we don't know a ton. We, have, we don't have a lot of details on, on Jacob. We know that he is the second-born twin. We saw this in Genesis 25. Um, Genesis 25 continues and says that, that Jacob was not as loved by his father as Esau was. Um, Genesis 25 says, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, because of something that, that, that Esau could provide, because of something he could do, because of something he was good at. It says that, that Isaac loved him. And I think this is important for the storyline of Jacob, um, something I didn't really see for a while. But I think what you see for the next chapter and, and going forward is that we see Jacob trying to seek the approval of his father. And I think we, as, as we moved on to Genesis 27 last week, and he goes and he's wanting this blessing from his father. He goes and he steals this. Again, seeking that approval. And what does he do to get that approval? He, he actually has to become someone else. He, he pretends to be Esau. And I think what we see, we, kinda, we see this picture that Jacob is growing up in a, in a merit-based system where, where love was, was earned on, on merit. 
Esau was loved because of something he could provide, something he could do. It says Isaac loved his game. He loved the, what he could provide him with. That Jacob was then even not even, didn't even, with, without stealing it, he could not have even gotten all the inheritance because he was the second born. And I think that this is starting to shape, shape Jacob's understanding, Jacob's relationships. And I, and I never saw this. It's really easy. Is even through the last two weeks, it was like, you see Jacob's sin. You see it very clearly, the way that he's lying and deceiving and, and acting. But we didn't, I didn't see a lot of the motives behind that. What is shaping him? Why is he, why is he acting in that way? And I think, I, was, I kept thinking back to what um, Pastor Sanghoon Yu talked about when he was here. Because, like, with a trauma-informed lens on, looking at the experience of Jacob, what he's experienced, things look a little bit differently. Because for him, his, his love relationship with his father would have appeared to be a merit-based thing. He couldn't hunt the game. Therefore, he wasn't as loved by his father. He had to become something different to earn the blessing of his father. He had to pretend to be his brother. And I think it's easy to see the sin that spills forth from his life. It's easy to see him lying. It's easy to see him deceiving. It's easy to see how he's acting. But do we still see the pain that is behind that? The, the pain, the hurt in the life of Jacob that has led him to this place where he's had to earn, he's had to try to be better than his brother. And I think the same like merit-based foundation is still being taught by the, by the world. I mean, so much of our world is structured in a merit-based way. And I, not all those things are bad. I mean, I work at a university. We have a lot of merit-based scholarships that we give out. There's a lot of, as we look at a job and promotions, a lot of those things are merit-based. My point is not that those things are bad. But in a merit-based world, when, when relationships begin to be merit-based, when society becomes to be merit-based, many people, I believe, kind of get left as feeling like they have no hope and not really a chance for success. And I think what you see is that there are people who become marginalized when the world, when, when, when everything is based on merit. Maybe it's because of socioeconomic class. Maybe it's based on education or lack thereof. Maybe it's based on location of where you live. But I think there's a lot of people that grow up in a society thinking, I can never earn that. I can't do that. I'm not set up to be able to succeed in that kind of world. And I know it, it might seem like kind of taking a, a tangent here, but I think it's, again, trying to set up where Jacob is. Like, Think, I don't want to stereotype too much, but think of an example of a child who has grown up in well, what many would consider kind of a rough neighborhood or maybe that, the inner city neighborhood. Like these areas are often known as having less than stellar education systems, less than stellar facilities and, and resources. Like from the very get-go, a child is going to feel disadvantaged other compared to those people maybe he sees in the movies, or other people he sees when he goes to the mall and things like this. But totally outside of his control, he's going to feel disadvantaged. 
So he begins to, to steal. And maybe the first time is stealing food because there's not quite enough. Or maybe then it goes to stealing clothes because he wants to fit in with the people he sees at the mall. The next thing you know, he steals money. And then a car. But then what happens when this kid is arrested? Is he not labeled as the bad kid criminal with no respect for the law? Is he wrong? Yes. Has he sinned? Yes. Should he be held accountable? Yes, I believe so. But I think that then, then like the people on the outside that are seeing this are jumping on and saying, he's such a bad person. Because we see the actions. We see the, we see the external reactions, how he has responded based on his reality, based on his experiences. But we can also see in this example a young man who's been taught that he has no shot in a merit-based system. And again, I think that it's important to think of Jacob's experiences. What has his life taught him thus far with his father? With how he's had to earn the love of his father? He's had to go steal a blessing from his father? But Esau is really no different. Now, like what did when when Abraham, sorry when Isaac first came to Esau and said I, I want to bless you go and hunt some game I'm going to read Genesis 27:3 again He says now then take your weapons your quiver your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die Like and as I began to think of this more and more this week it was like He's even telling his son Esau, go and do your best. Go and do that thing I love. Then I'm going to bless you. Go and earn first. Go and do what you're good at first. Like, how much pressure did Esau feel in this moment? And as we opened up in verse 28, or chapter 28 today, God, or Isaac, sends Jacob away. So we ended last week. It says Esau wanted to kill him. Um, And so Isaac comes and he sends him away. And what does he say? He says, do not go and marry a Canaanite. Don't, don't marry a Canaanite. Go to your, to your mother's family and marry someone from there. Do you remember what Esau has already done? This is Genesis 26, 34. It says, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Barry the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And Esau had... Esau had already taken a wife from the Canaanites. He had already done this. And now he hears that his father has told Jacob, don't go take a wife from the, from, the, from the Canaanites. And then we get this passage in verses 6 through 9. What does Esau do? He runs and takes a wife from his father's family. Verse 8. When Esau saw the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Neboeth. So right when he sees, oh, that doesn't, that's not going to please my father. So I'm going to go and try to do something that's going to please him. Because it's, it's merit-based. It's, i got to do this to earn that love. i got to do this to please my father. And I can't help, one of the commentaries pointed this out, and I think it's, 
Ironic, maybe? I don't know if that's the right word. Like he goes and marries a daughter of Ishmael, the, this, the son that we talked about being the son of effort, the one that he didn't rely on God's promises, but he wins. And said, oh, I'm going to do this anyways. I'm going to earn this. And that's the daughter that, from Ishmael, is the daughter that Esau went and married. It's like, again, all this is the backdrop for, for Jacob and for Esau. But something is going to have to change for Jacob in this merit-based system, this merit-based relationships that he is, has grown up around. And so let's look more at the interaction between Jacob and, and, and God, starting in verse 10. I'm just going to read this one more time. I'm going to start in verse 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth and shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So these, again, the same promises that God has already been making to Abraham, and, and then to Isaac. And now we see him, him, him say this to Jacob as well. But did you notice when Nick was reading it, do you notice his response? So after God tells him this, Jacob awakes. What does he say? He says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. We've, up to this point, we've been given no reason to believe that Jacob knows the Lord at all. I mean, what, all we've seen thus far is negative examples of Jacob. We've seen his sin. We've seen the ways he's responded to certain things. There's, we've, seen the, we've seen him in the light of his character, and that's not a good thing. But what we see here, at least what is recorded, is Jacob's first real interaction, real conversation, real coming to hear from the Lord. And here's what I think. I think what we see is Jacob coming in contact with the God that he had long heard about, but not the God that he knew. Because this all of a sudden became real to Jacob. God came to Jacob. Sure, I'm sure Jacob was aware of his parents' faith and his grandfather and Abraham and I, like all of that. Well, this is the first experience recorded that we see between Jacob and God. But God comes and says, these are the promises that I'm making to you. Keep going. Verse 20 and 20 through 22, we see again Jacob, Jacob's continual response, and he makes a vow to the Lord. Verse 20, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, 
so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God, and the stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all of that you give me, I shall give a tenth to you. Did you notice his response? Like, what he said. If God will be with me, if God will do these things, then he will be my God. Like, when I first read this this week, I was kind of ready to jump on Jacob again. Like, I was ready to kind of say, we've seen all this negative light, this negative things from Jacob. We've seen his stealing, his deceiving. And now, like, now he's putting conditions on God and saying, well, if only if you do these things will you be my God. Only if you bring me back to this land, only if you give me clothes, only if you do these things will you be my God. And I read a, a bunch of different commentaries this week, and some of them really were like, really like, man, Jacob still doesn't get it. Jacob is still this awful jerk who doesn't understand who God is. And to a certain level, I think this is absolutely true. I mean, I'm never going to say, yeah, put conditions on God. Yeah, say to all these if statements in response to God. That's, that, that's not at all what we would say. But I think Jacob's response, though, is one that a lot of people can resonate with. Because Jacob has just been coasting along, being the lying, deceiving guy that he has shown himself to be. No, we have no other recorded experience between him and God. And then God comes out of nowhere and says, I'm going to make all these promises to you. Remember, We've said the last couple weeks, specifically last week, that, that God was going to break Jacob down over a period of time. Like God was going to work on him. It was going to really start this process of first coming to him and saying, I am God, this is what I am going to do. But as a sinner myself and someone who I also feel like God broke down over time, like I really feel like I resonate with his response. Many of you know generally my story, but like, I was fortunate enough to grow up in, in a home where I knew a lot about God. I knew a lot about the church. I was there all the time. And not, until recently, like, I didn't realize how huge a gift of grace this was in my life. Like, I was six when I first professed to, to believe in Jesus. That he had rescued me from my sin. But for the longest time after that, I, I, I just coasted along. I knew the words to say. I knew what my parents expected me to say. I knew what my friends expected me to say. I knew what my church expected me to say. And kind of after another, I guess, 12 years of that, and moving away to college, all of a sudden, things really changed. Like, no longer was I woken up on Sunday morning and said, all right, we're going to church. Like, no longer did I have that same influence from at least constant influence from my parents. Like all of a sudden I was surrounded by peers that did not have that same expectation of me to act a certain way. And it quickly became apparent to me that this like faith that I had surrounded myself with was really just me coasting along under like this umbrella of my parents' faith, of the faith that I'd grown up around. And it wasn't really until I moved to college or moved away from college into my own apartment, that it really, like, I felt the gravity of this. 
And like over the next year, I would struggle financially. I would struggle morally. I would struggle understanding my relationship with God. But it was really over the course of these five years of God breaking me down and showing me that he was worth more than anything else. But there was also this like time where I was like, all right, God, like, I need you to show me that you're going to be my God, not just my parents' God, not just this God of the church that I had grown up around my whole life, but with something that was like, God, like, are you my God? Is it, am I the one you want? Do you really love me? And like in saying all of that, like as Jacob's first response to an encounter with God, when he's still a little skeptical, it's still like, well, God, you got to do all this first. We got to keep in mind that God is still breaking Jacob down. He's still beginning this process of showing Jacob what he is like, what grace is. Because remember, Jacob has grown up in this merit-based system that love is based on what you can do, how you can perform. So it makes sense almost that Jacob would say, well, you've got to do this before I'm going to call you my God. You've got to make sure I'm clothed. You've got to make sure that you bring me back to this land like you're promising. And so instead of jumping on Jacob, kind of over the course of this week in preparation, it's like, no, I, I get that response. Like, I can hear that. And again, like, was his response right? No. I don't, I don't want to say, yes, he responded correctly. Yes, put conditions on God. No. But I think as we all think of our responses to God, I, I don't, and if this is you, like, we can talk later, but I don't know if we've all responded perfectly the first time that we felt God saying, I want you. But I wonder if we all treated people in the Bible as we treat each other with a level of, of empathy and understanding of, of what their background has taught them about who God is. Because there's so many times when I, in conversations with people, both inside the church and outside the church, when it's like, man, I don't believe this about God. Like, I, I don't see this. I don't understand this. And I'm like, the Bible says this. Why are we doubting this? Why don't you understand this? I said last week, or yeah, I think it was last week, that we often, I often get frustrated at my own lack of spiritual maturity, but I think it's even easier to get frustrated at other people's lack of spiritual maturity. Um, but what if instead of just lashing out and saying, no, look at the Bible. Here's what it says. Believe it. What if at the same time, we empathetically said, no, no, I understand that what your experiences have taught you is not the same as what they taught me. What if we patiently loved and unconditionally loved people knowing that all of our life experiences have taught us various things about the world, about the nature of love, about the nature of God? Because why trust God as a good heavenly father when your only experience with a father has been anger, violence, and abuse? Why trust that God can really bring peace when all your life has been is chaos? Why trust that God is a God of reconciliation when all you've seen is division in families and not reconciliation? 
Why trust that God will fulfill his promises when your life has been full of broken promises? Why trust God's unconditional love when all you've known is merit-based relationships where you've had to prove yourself? I think that's kind of what Jacob's doing. He's, he's basing his, re, his relationship with God, like that, that, that well, you've got to do this first. He's basing that on what his life has taught him. And I believe that to truly be the church, to, to truly unconditionally love one another, both inside the church and outside the church, I believe that it's, it's stepping into these places, it's stepping into these relationships and these conversations with a level of love and seeking to understand and not just condemning. Because I think that it's in those moments when God reveals himself, when God steps in as a loving father, when he reveals his unconditional love. Because that's what he's going to do for Jacob. Jacob, he doesn't lash out at Jacob's less than stellar response. He doesn't lash out, but he's going to continue to love Jacob. He's going to continue to lead him. He's going to continue to reveal himself more and more and more. I keep coming back to just the fact that God came to Jacob. God came to Jacob. Like this is someone who, again, we've said this, I've said this over and over and over again, that this is a sinner, this is a deceiver, this is a liar. This is someone who's currently running away from the consequences of his sin. But yet God comes to Jacob. He comes to him in this dream and makes these promises to him. And I think that's, it's really paradigm shifting because Jacob, we see no signs of remorse in Jacob. We see no repentance in Jacob at this point. But yet in this, God is intervening and comes to Jacob. Notice how he, God reveals himself to Jacob, though. He's, we see this, this ladder... Um, it says that there's um, God's angels going up and down on this ladder with God standing at the top and God starts to speak to Jacob. And we see this, this ladder that's going from, from earth to heaven and these, this is God's angels going back and forth. And I can't help but see that the connection between heaven and earth was God orchestrated. That that was put there, that was God doing that. And I was thinking of that in contrast to Genesis 11, Tower of Babel. Because when you begin to think about it, I think what you see is a lot of similarities, but also some huge contrast. Do you remember the Tower of Babel? So in Genesis 11, we saw that, that mankind had come together and said, we're going to build a tower to the heavens. You know, you don't have to flip there, but Genesis 11.4 says, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So this, this mankind has come together. They're like, we're going to build a tower to the heavens. We're going to reach the heavens on our own. We're going to do this in our own effort, in our own might. Like, we don't need any help doing that. And God, knowing that they, they can't do this, that, that they're never going to succeed in this, that, that he'd really just save them, 
He, it says he scatters them over the face of the earth. We see he changes his, their languages and all sorts of things. But here in Genesis 28, we see that the only connection between earth and heaven was God orchestrated. That, but also, it wasn't for man to get to God, but it was God coming to man. Not, man's not on the ladder. Man's not on the ladder, but God must come to man. And why is that such a necessity? Why is it such a necessity? I think I put Romans 3 up there. Yeah. Romans 3, 10 through 12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. You see, not, not Jacob, not Esau, not Isaac, not Abraham, not you, not me. Like, none of us good enough. None of us good but all have, have chased the world. All have gone astray. All have turned their own way. All, in, in one way or another, have rejected the love of God, have rejected the provision of God. We've lived our lives as if we, tried to, as if we knew better. But no matter how hard we may try, no one good not even one. But that's where like this whole picture, this whole message, it all gets really, really good. Because no matter how, how hard we may try, no matter how high we try to build our own tower, no matter how many good works we may try to do, like we need a Savior. No matter how hard we may try, none of it, none of it saves us. We need God to come to us. But it's in that moment, it's in that space of, of no one being good, no one being able to earn anything. It's in that space that God sent Jesus. And I, I can't help but think, and, and a lot of, almost everything I was reading this week, every commentary was saying, but yeah, see, the ladder we see that the angels, it says the angels of God ascending and descending on the ladder. But Jesus would be the ultimate one to come down and come to earth step into our brokenness and step into our sin, step into our mess. Be tortured, be crucified, would die for the sins of man. But Jesus came to us. Jesus came to us. He did that for us. And all through the Old Testament, we keep seeing these pictures, these, these pictures pointing to Jesus and just as God came to Jacob and said, I'm making you this, this, this promise of unconditional love, that I'm going to make these promises to you, not what you're going to earn, but what I am going to do. In Jesus, we are also given unconditional love. We're given a promise. A promise of salvation. A promise of forgiveness of sin a promise of eternal life, a promise of being adopted into the family of God. This is, like, this is the story of the entire Bible. 
of man separated from God, but God coming to man. It's this grand story of what God has done. It's one big declaration of God and His grace, His love. Like, why is the gospel such good news? Because it's God saving us out of a merit-based society, a merit-based world that our relationship with Him is not based on merit. Like, He removes that burden from us. But it's now love that has been freely given. And we're going to continue to see God reveal himself to Jacob. He's going to continue, as as I said, continue to kind of work on Jacob. It's going to kind of culminate in this wrestling match between God and Jacob. But Jacob is going to continue to be kind of called out from under the umbrella of of his parents' faith. He's going to be called out from, from an umbrella of just knowing about God, but truly knowing God. And there may be some of us, as I was talking about earlier, like, who kind of, who've lived far too long under an umbrella of knowing about God, of knowing a lot about Him, knowing all the right words to say, but not truly knowing Him. And that's what it really took, as I, as I was telling my story, like what it really took was uh, understanding that God had not just sent Jesus for my mom or my dad or all the people in my church I grew up in, but that he wanted me. He did that for me. Like, that's what it took for everything to change. Like, everything in my life, I still took, like, a sharp turn at that direction. It's not, it's been far from perfect. But it was understanding that Jesus actually loved me. But also as we look at this, like I hope that we will also be stirred in, in the way that we interact and love and care for, for others, both inside the church and outside the church. Because as I said, we've all been shaped by our experiences in our life, good, bad, ugly. Maybe it's having to earn the love of a parent. Maybe it's a background marked by violence and abuse. Like maybe it's a life of of pain and of, of hurt. Like it's in this moment when we as the church can lean in and say, we can lean in with, with true unconditional love because that's what God does. He leans in in these moments and shows the depth of his love. And I think that we as the church have the opportunity to do that as well. And my, my prayer for us as a church, as we continue to look at the life, the life of Jacob, as we continue to, to, to see God reveal himself to him, I pray that as we look at all this, that we would be a church that not just intellectually understands all this, but believes it and loves it and displays it. I'm going to pray and... I just I invite you to pray with me, just that, that God would so grow us and show continue to reveal Himself to us, and we would just continue to grow and, and love Him more. Let's pray.